offended and attacked. People who are experiencing false doctrine and false behavior. Theological things that are becoming offensive and frustrating. And the answer to all of that is that Paul is saying, by the command of Christ, here is how the church ought to live. This is what the church ought to do. You know, I think about training sometimes, and I have a lot of training in a lot of different things. Musical training and martial arts training, and I'll leave it all at that. But it's interesting that when you train certain things and you train certain ways, the training does take over. The discipline takes over. I remember in high school when I had some uh, compulsion to expel my air <laughs> constantly. I felt like I couldn't get a full breath. I felt like I had stale air. This was, the, this was the thought that kept invading my mind, that I had stale air in my lungs, so I couldn't get it all out. I wanted to get a full breath. So I found after a couple of months that I was literally walking around <laughs> doing this little tick. And it was so common that I had stopped noticing it. James, you all right? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You know, and I can't really do it now because it's comforting in some sense. But what you find is that when you change the behavior, when you discipline yourself to act in a certain way, to approach thoughts and feelings and even the discipline of certain types of activities, when you do it correctly, practice makes permanent. When we do life correctly in Christ, practice makes permanent. When we're driven by emotion, when we're driven by anger, which is an emotion, when we're driven by fear, when we're driven by our own desires and affections, when we're driven by what we know, how things should be, instead of practicing and being disciplined in that which God has prescribed for us, we can expect nothing from the Lord. That's what James says. And what he means by that is that why ask God to intervene and to work out these things according to his purposes when his purposes that are very clear have been given to us in simple terms, simple language, childlike instruction. If we don't do the basics, we cannot expect the great things. We cannot expect the simple outcomes. Changing habits are very difficult. But once we have disciplined ourselves to practice in such a way, to live in such a way, to operate in such a way, to think in a certain way, to put to death the flesh in a certain reality, then what happens is when all of the stuff that's going to come and it's always going to come, that song we just sang is so full of everything that I've been thinking about over the last few months and especially this week. It is so full of the truth of God's sovereignty and that His people above all people who stand firm in the discipline and the instruction of the Scripture, we are going to suffer in a major way in comparison to those who don't. Because those who don't, don't stand in the discipline of Christ. Those who don't suffer typically give up and walk away from that which Christ has clearly instructed us. And John says it like this, those who leave us were not of us. The same thing's happening in Ephesus. Same thing's happening today in our culture, all over the world. And Paul is literally saying, there's a joke in that, this is how we ought to act. This is what we ought to be doing. This is how God will overcome these circumstances. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the assembly of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, if you read this letter... And if you're familiar with Paul, you know, this is not foreign for Paul. Paul is always about singing a hymn or throwing some doxology in the midst of his writing. He's, he's very versed in that. I mean, after all, this is what the gospel does. 
When we suffer, but we are gospel grace recipients, we rejoice. We go, wow, hallelujah, in the midst of the greatest pain ever. And that is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, truly and always, certainly in his people, if we are disciplined to listen. And the test that Paul gives and the apostles give in the New Testament is they write these letters by unction and, dri- and drive and command of God the Spirit. Different than any letter that you or I would ever write. And what I find as someone who reads and researches and writes and teaches and talks and words and words and words, words are always coming out of my head, even if they're not coming out of my mouth. There's a constant conversation in my head about something every single hour of the day. And if I'm blessed, it'll shut off and I go to sleep. But sometimes it doesn't. And there's a whole lot of words. And it's amazing how verbose I must be to explain what God can simply teach in his word with just one thought. The question is, are we listening? Or better, do we have spiritual ears to hear? Do we have spiritual ears to hear? Paul wants to come to Ephesus. He helped plant this church. He did plant this church. (laughs) He trained Timothy personally to be the elder of the city. And then he left Timothy there to appoint more elders who were qualified men who could continue the image of Christ and humility and oversight and care and doctrine, not only in the things of God in his revealed self, but also in the commands of God in his revealed self. And Paul is writing this, and he goes into this doxology by saying, I want to come. I want to be there. Because being with the body is the point. Being with the body is when you get your prayers answered. When you get your needs met. God, I wish somebody could come alongside me and help me. But I'm all by myself. It's like the old joke that that we used to have in middle school where this guy was really devout and the floods were coming and he gets up on the roof of his house, you know, and this boat comes by and another boat comes by and a helicopter comes by and, no, I'm trusting in the Lord. And then he dies. He's like, well, I was trusting. He said, well, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What were you waiting on? God has sent the church. God has given elders and deacons to the body to serve and to teach and to oversee and to make sure that the work of the ministry is done. Ministry is not about what we do in the context of cultural ideologies. Ministry is not what the world has said ministry is. Worship is not, uh, biblically speaking, prescribed the way we do it. What we do in worship and why we do in worship is to the point to the praise of His glorious grace so that then we might grow into maturity into Him who is our head, the fullness of Christ, by speaking the truth in love, by living, by giving ourselves for one another. And when we find ourselves isolated, it is because we are not practicing the discipline of trusting the sovereignty of God. I'm going to say that again. When we find ourselves isolated in our faith and in our lives, it is because we are not trusting in the prescription of God and His sovereignty. We're not trusting in Him. I didn't say anything about your salvation. Beloved, it is about the disciplines of the faith, which is why this letter was written. I'm going to write these things because if I delay, and we don't know what was going on with Paul. I mean, people argue. There's a lot of confident assertions in historical theology, by the way, and a lot of confident assertions in, 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 in church history. Oh, this is where Paul was. This is what he was doing. This is what he was wearing. No, we don't know. You know why we don't know? Because it wasn't important for us to know. Paul was writing to Timothy by the Spirit, and now we have these letters for the elders of the church to know what it is that they need to be doing and that you can also read them. They're not hidden special knowledge. They're direct knowledge. Now the church can know all of the details too. There's no special handbook of pastoral care. It's the Bible. If I delay, he's probably in prison. There's no telling where he was. It was very common for him to be sick or in prison. You may know I'm writing this letter. This letter, not what I'm about to say, what I have been saying and continue will say. I am writing this letter so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. 
Now think about that for a second. Now as a kid, I remember hearing those times when we'd go to church or whatever. I, I've heard before. Probably numerous times, depending on the family member in which you were. I've heard before, and I can't tell you who or where, but I've heard before. This is the house of God. You ever heard that? Don't run in the house of God. Don't talk loudly in the house of God. Don't drink coffee in the house of God. Don't go to the potty in the house of God. This is not the house of God. This building was a bra store, shoe store, wig store, everything else. We've done kung fu in here. We've done karaoke in here. We've, heaven knows what our youth have thrown around and abused in this building. I've seen mannequins set up in here in odd places that weren't supposed to be here. This is a building. It is not holy. God does not dwell in this building. There is nothing in which God can be contained. But what is this household? Now, I could go through Scripture. I could really just pull out 20, 30, 40 verses and read them all. And tell, but let's just speak generally in the sense in which Paul is expressing this. What does Paul say to the Hebrews? We are the pillars. John talks about the church being the pillars. The household of God, where the temple and the tabernacle gave the imagery, the point of all of that was to show that God's people were his house. God dwells with us, His people. God dwells within us in His Spirit. I want you to hear this. To the point where the Word teaches, the Lord teaches, where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus speaking, there I am with them. By the authority and by the power of Christ, when we gather together, Christ is with us. When we are alone, Christ is with us. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Why? Because God the Father has forsaken the Son and judged Him according to the law and poured wrath upon Him to pay the penalty of the sin. Just like I teach, the mortgage is paid, the dead note has been paid, there is no other payment to be had, there is no other anything, no other condition whatsoever that must be met for sins to be paid for, period. God's elect are free. And we proclaim that. That's called the gospel, the evangel. We do that in gospelism, evangelism. We share the good news, the good story of God's finished redemption in Christ Jesus for his people. And when God so chooses, he grants faith. He changes the mind of the believer supernaturally by his spirit, which is the word repentance. And then we know someone has been granted repentance because they trust fully in the promises of God for salvation which are finished in Christ Jesus. That is faith. And it's a divine work where the person rests not only in their mind but in their spirit. And I don't have time to talk about Plato and Aristotle and their ideas of spirit, mind, and all that other garbage. Just generally speaking, you know what I mean. So here we have Paul writing 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy so that the church ought to know how to behave. You know what's funny? Is that there's nothing in this letter that is indicative of a problem in behavior in the church itself. But the problem is people making confident assertions about how things ought to be theologically and what people ought to believe theologically. To the point where they're becoming divisive, derailing the oversight of the word of God. They're derailing the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And then those who agree with them are being tugged away this way. And those who disagree are being tugged away this way. And the Bible calls that demonic. Why? Because it is not God's prescription for how we ought to behave in the church. And let me say that the main thing that really takes place as we see throughout the scripture and anecdotally in our own lives, we probably all could experience, have experienced this. One of the main things that does this is when people open their mouths about someone else who's not standing with them. It is murder 100% of the time. No exceptions whatsoever. There is no place in the Bible where any believer, even an elder, has the right to talk bad or negatively about anybody, even if...
if it is the truth, ooh, that's loud, even if it is the truth, you can't do it. It is a sin before the holiness of God. It is an abomination to Christ himself who spoke not a word in his own defense and hung himself on a cross to die for his people. And it is probably the number one thing in my entire life in ministry that has always caused serious, serious, gross death. So guess what? Nothing's changed. What was going on here? I can already feel it. You know what's happened. We've talked about these things here in Ephesus. These people were the point of discussion. There wasn't good worship. Let's talk about these people. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about who's right or wrong. Let's figure out what's what. And God himself comes through, through the apostles. Jesus Christ says, this is why I've written this letter, so that you ought to know how to behave. Yes, all this is going on. I've entrusted the elders of the church to handle this thing according to the commands of God Almighty himself. And everybody else, mind your business. See? And you know what's ironic? about the experiences that we had two years ago? Is that all that was ever said is that we will submit to the lordship of the word and the sovereignty of God in his word. And then everything went sideways. Not any more conversations were had with the people involved. That's demonic. When it goes sideways from there. And anyone who would charge that it's not. They themselves speak for Satan. Now that's extremely hard dogma. If you don't like it, take it up with Paul. If you don't like him, just tell Jesus there's a problem. Yep, it's a fallacy. But I have the microphone. <laughs> and there's no debate right there, you see. If I'm wrong, that's okay. The scripture will correct us. If I'm right, the scripture will promote me in that context, will undergird that which I say. If my spirit is wrong, that's for me to deal with the Lord. If my spirit is right, praise the Lord. When God gives us repentance in our sin, we celebrate. When God changes and transforms our ideologies so that we can have unity, we celebrate. We don't further then dig to destroy that which God has put together. Beloved, Paul goes here because he's already been talking about the kind of conduct that the church ought to have in the midst of extreme, negative, deadly, false teachers. Is that they must have good doctrine. We've talked about that over in chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. We must know the truth. Doctrine is important, it's the foundation what is taught, and we're going to talk about doctrine. Doctrine, the word means teaching. So if I teach you how this microphone works, that is doctrine. If I teach you how to speak in front of it, that teaching of public speaking is doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. I'm teaching you. The Bible teaches us theological things and subject matter, and the Bible teaches us application things and behavior, and they are all the doctrines of Christ. Anyone who subdivides those and says, well, the doctrines of Christ is all about the, 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 the redemptive work and the theology behind it. Baloney. Baloney. That's garbage. Beloved, we've got to get away from that myopic ignorance. It doesn't matter that you can recite the gospel. If our love is gone and we can't submit to the gospel bringer, it's worthless. That's not me. That's Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. And Jesus in John 13, 14, 15. <laughs> and Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 and 2. You see, so we, we get to the place where we get overcome by ignorance, thinking that we are confident, and then we end up becoming just like the false teachers here in Ephesus who we confidently assert what must be. We need to understand the gospel picture in creation. We need to understand the gospel picture in the subjection of the church in the picture of the gospel in marriage. 
We need to understand the role of the church in learning, men and women. We need to understand that not every man, just because you're a man, doesn't give you the right to teach the Bible at the church. You must be a qualified man who is approved according to the Scripture. And when someone has a call or a gift, and the Scripture teaches us very clearly to allow and permit and to grow those gifts for the sake of the church. The same thing with elders and deacons. When the person is tested and ready, we present them to the church as a servant, as a gift. And we should all be gifts to one another. So what does Paul hope to accomplish? Well, we know what's going on. And he's teaching in this letter, as the apostle, he has the final, he's already said this, he has the final and divinely gifted wisdom for the church in all matters. Now see, that's a high order, isn't it? If I stood up here and said, my name is James and I, by God, know everything that needs to be known and you're going to do what I say, or boom, you should just come talk to me afterwards and we'll see about how long I'm going to be in the pulpit. (laughs) Might have, to go, might have to go somewhere for a couple of weeks and chill out. That's not how it works. But Paul gave that assertion. The apostles gave that assertion. To the point where Paul will say, if anyone disregards anything I write, treat them as not a brother. I'm going to say that again. Anyone who disagrees with my behavioral commands or my doctrinal propositions are to be treated as an unconverted person. Huh? Yes. It's all or none, buddy. All this mess going on. We need to do something in the world. You see, this is where our fear, isn't it? We get on social media, we're inundated with information that we're not supposed to have. I mean, I remember seeing early newspapers where, like in my great-grandmother's house, that people would come over and visit, and there was a guest log. And they'd write in, who, and at the end of every week, she'd submit that to the Enterprise, and it would, you know, well, Eunice and, and Lala got together, and they talked, they had tea and coffee, and made some incredible pound cake, and discussed the matters of such and such. And there was a, there was a whole section in the newspaper of who was visiting who and what they did. No lie. And that's not information that we need. That's the first Facebook, folks. You think it's strange, but we do it too. Look at my, look at my pie. Look at my flower. Look at my cat. Look at my new shoe. Why does my poo look like this? I mean, you know, you see some crazy stuff. This is private. Stop it. But we're all inundated with information that we're just not supposed to have. And so because of that, we feel out like that we have the right to be involved in every thing in the world. We're all the president. We're all the secretary of state. We're all the governor. We're all the mayor. We all know everything exactly how it ought to be and we make assertions. I've talked to two people this week who made assertions about political things that were absolutely completely made up. And I'm in good place so I just I went with it. It's like the telemarketers. Sometimes I like to answer those calls. Get them all the way. Oh, sorry, can you repeat the credit card number? Hold on a minute. Four, two, three. Hang up. So I'm like, okay, tell me more, please. That sounds very damning. I, I need to know not to vote for this person. Can you give me details? Can you give me examples? What did they do? Oh, well, uh, uh, uh. And then they make up a narrative based on pieces of information. You know our brains work like that, don't you? If I say to some of you, do you remember the time we had coffee and we talked about this and that was true? And then I say, remember how I said this and I say a statement that I didn't talk about? You'll agree with me? And the next time I'll say, can you tell me what happened in our coffee? You'll tell me the thing I made up as if you experienced it. That's how our brains work. Your memories are fabrications, about 70% fabrication on the details of things. And all it takes is your mom to show you a picture of something. Say, remember you did this? And then you'll think it happened. And you'll elaborate. And by the time you're 50, you'll start telling people story that's completely different. But you go to bed every night thinking that it's true. Beloved, we can't trust what we believe we remember. We can trust, though, 
that if we stick to what scriptures taught us about how to handle these things, we won't be inundated with fear and failure. The apostle has the final authority, the divinely gifted wisdom for the church in all matters. So if we want to find out how to handle stuff and the Bible says this is how you do it, we sit down together. Nope, I'm not sitting down. Then you're now the problem. I'm leaving the church. Then you're the problem. God help marriages who, who operate like that. God in his mercy, man, if we just follow the prescription, sometimes marriages work out. After disasters, sometimes relationship problems work out because Christ is given, has given the details on what we do. And so Paul is teaching. He's given doctrine. That's what the word means. Doctrine literally means teaching. So it refers only to what is taught. It's the very act of teaching, the subject matter of teaching. And there are many ways to teach something. And it can be taught rightly or wrongly, and this information or instruction can be accurate or inaccurate, but it's still doctrine. Doctrine is what is taught through the written passages of Scripture when we talk about doctrine according to the faith. And it means in every sense. Anything written in the Bible, if it's taught to someone, that's doctrine. You understand that? If it's taught to someone, it's doctrine. And as much as I want to say, man, I don't ever make a mistake, that's garbage. As much as I want to think that my mind is clearly open when I open the scripture and I'm always able to absorb just the context and never err in my own judgments, that's ridiculous. That's impossible. There are, AI algorithms can't even do that. But doctrine, what is taught through the written pages of Scripture, in every sense. And what are some of those ways in which we can learn? What is, how is doctrine taught? Historically, we see what people did. We see what God told these people to write. We see how they acted and what they said. If we read the Psalms, we see what they thought. The poetry. We see the prophets. So we can learn what the prophets were told and what the prophets said and what the prophets did. We see Jeremiah weeping and praying. We see Jonah running and angry. We see Moses hiding and murderous, relenting and caring, a true pastor. Kill them all. No, don't kill them. <laughs> we see the poetry. We see the apocalyptic writings. The reveal things, these incredibly somewhat cryptic type readings. And we see the didactics. So out of all of that, we can learn there's doctrine there, but the doctrine of all these other things, the genres of Scripture, the different things, what we learn from the history is the history. The teaching is the history. And then we only, we only do and obey that which is prescribed for us by the ones who give didactic. In other words, here's the truth. Here's what the prophets meant. Here's what the Old Testament is trying to say. Here's what creation really stands for. Now, therefore, do this. Act this way. Don't do that. Don't act this way. Don't say these things. This is what the Bible is for. For the, for the body. For the people. It is all revealed by God of God to His people. God the Spirit giving understanding as His people study and learn His Word with humility. I mean, how many times have you met someone who knows a whole lot about the prophets? And can come in and talk about Deuteronomy and all this other stuff about the law. And people come in you know, and get Nehemiah and then start trying to apply that to the United States or to the church or to whoever. There's no application there except God sovereignly working as a picture of showing He is the one who will rebuild and buttress the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ. It's not about building a wall. Isolationism in the body of Christ is a wicked sin. Buying property in the middle of nowhere so all the Christians can hang out without any influence of the world is evil. It's a direct disobedience to everything found in the apostles' writing. And people that think that way are warped. Now, have I ever thought that way? Yes, I think it would be great. Until I read the Bible, I go, yeah, that's just, you know, it'd be nice, but it wouldn't be fruitful. 
and it is not of God, you see? It's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to teach it to somebody else as if it's good and pleasant and beneficial to the Lord. I mean, for the Lord's people. So the only means of order in the Christian life is the local assembly. To live according to the scripture as given to the, to the local assembly. Now see, what happens is when we say what scripture says concerning the local church, a lot of people then say, oh, so now you're an ecumenical. Now you're about, you know, the hierarchy of the church. Oh, we don't have bishops. No, come on, folks. Just because everybody in the world has an example of where some of this kind of reality and some of this truth was abused to an incredibly extreme doesn't mean that we ignore it. We don't ignore it. Just because we have misogyny and, and, and all this other wickedness against women doesn't mean we ignore the created order of God's picture in marriage and leadership in the church. Just because we have things that we don't particularly care for because people have become hateful and, 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 and done all sorts of things against. I mean, people, nobody I know says the Crusades was a thing of God these days. I'm sure there are people who would think that, but nobody that I know. But yet there's nothing different in me taking a sword under the authority of the crown and killing people who don't come to my theological position as there is for me to go out into the world and destroy somebody with my mouth because they don't see my theological position. It's still a crusade. It's still murder. It's still wicked. And Paul was wanting to prevent that. If you notice, gas dropped 40 cents over the weekend. A gallon. 370 something over here yesterday. It's 420 Wednesday. And I don't hear anybody saying, woohoo, gas going now. Yay, things are good, things are good. No, but let that thing go up five cents. And the world's ending. And everybody's a politician. Everybody knows exactly why it happened. They're buying bumper stickers to stick on pumps and think it's cute. I don't think it's cute. First time I saw it, I thought, oh, that's pretty funny. And then I realized, you know what? That's a violation of what Scripture teaches the church to do, so I don't want to find that funny anymore. Lord, help me in my humor. <laughs> but the church, the only means for order in the life of the Christian is the local church. Several years ago, I don't know when I said it, but it came up in Facebook this week that, you know, reminded me of what I was thinking. Thanks. I was trying to forget that. That's why we shouldn't opine so negatively sometimes on social media because when we're a cure, we might be reminded of how bad we were or how bad it was. But a true church has true polity. A true church has true oversight. A true church has things operating together just like life is indicative of certain things and conditions that must be. And you have to have brain that's operating your cardiovascular system and your pulmonary system or you have to have something artificially keeping that running because without the proper amount of oxygen in the means of the body things start to die. You're not, lie. You're not alive. Without the church having elders and deacons in a body and submissive to the instruction and the commands of the New Testament apostles, then we're not a church. If we're not local, we're not the church, you see. We're not operating according to the prescription of God's order. And this order that we see in the New Testament that Paul is writing to Timothy about is not for the world. It's not for the church to go, now see here, that's how you ought to be living, neighbor. You need to be in church and you need to do this and you need to do that. No, live your neighbor, let your neighbor live. Okay, Psalm 73, I read it this morning before service started. And it's one of those things where Asaph is looking around, sort of like Solomon, you know. He's looking around and seeing all the wicked and everything they're doing. He's suffering and everything else is going great for all these people who don't worship God. He's like, this makes me bitter. Ah, why am I paying for all this and they're getting away with it? And the scripture teaches us that he got on his knees and bittered and started to look after the heart of God and God showed him. He said, their fit's going to slip. And if it weren't for my grace to you, you'd be in the same boat. You'd be a self-righteous person thinking, look at all those bad people out there. This order is not to be given to the world. It's required of the church, not of the world. 
the Bible is not written, the New Testament is not written so that we can get governments and policy and everything else under the confines of God's hierarchy and, and, and things like this. Get out of Genesis and get into, get into what Genesis means by getting into the Gospels and getting into the teaching of the apostles. Because like I promise you, when God told Moses to write out Genesis, he was not considering influencing the governments of the world. And he was also not considering taking and that the church might create an incredible people who worship God like the nation of Israel never could do. <laughs> Look at when critical mass is in an an explosive or exponential growth in Christianity and the world. Beloved, it's not the true gospel. It's always self-righteousness. And some people say, well, what about this? What about reform? What about all this? These are very small individuals who made very small impact at a very short, a very long period of history. It wasn't a movement. It was individual here being persecuted and silenced and being done with, but yet somebody in God's purposes picked that up and ran with it and went to another small community and began to teach. And another person went into a community and began to teach. And the church began to live. The church will always live. Because, I mean, look at the Puritans. I don't want to be like them. There's no joy. There's no hope there. There's only a few Puritans that I can even read. And even then, I need to read them in the context of the poetry of Scripture because if I read in the New Testament... They, they almost put you in a place where you can't be saved. To where it would be just as easy to go back to the monastery and beat myself every morning in my prayers and burn myself with wax. Shave my head and tear my clothes. This is not the way of grace. There's order. But it's not for the world. The Bible is not for the world to be set apart. The Bible is for those who are set apart by God from the world, see. Set apart by God in election, in redemption, but adoption, and instruction, salvation, and then worship. We live our lives, according to Paul in Romans 12, that we live our lives as worshipers. Jesus in John chapter 4 would, would come and say, but we worship. A true worshiper worships in spirit and in truth. And this woman from Sychar, she was always trying to figure out how to worship rightly and do the right things and become the right person. But she could never become the right person because she was tainted. She was dirty. She was unclean. And she could never escape that sinful tarnish except that Jesus Christ take the guilt on himself and he showed her this. He showed her this. And she became a true worshiper of Christ. God instructs doctrine on how the church to ought to live according to right worship. God's will then, therefore, is revealed clearly for his people through the teaching. We don't have to dig into the Bible to try to find a hidden will. If God has a hidden will, then it's always hidden. We see Paul talking about the mystery. He uses the context right here as we get to. He uses the word mystery, but it's not a mystery in that it can't be found or that it needs to be discovered. Paul's use of the word mystery is that it was once hidden, but now has made known, you see. And so God's will is revealed for his people through the teaching, the doctrine of the Bible. And though we might be ignorant of it today, when we read the scripture, we will not be ignorant of it tomorrow. And he also reveals for his people his will through the means and order of the life of the church, which he commands. And there's no other way. A couple of things in this text. Paul knows that his visit to Ephesus would be the best answer. But God delayed him so that he would write Timothy so that the church today would have the letter. I want you to hear about that for a second. I could seriously just talk about God's sovereignty in the context of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture right now. And Paul does that in the second letter that he writes to Timothy. So Paul's plan, apostolically, by the command of Christ, was to go to Ephesus and help clear all this, teach this stuff in person. And it's not the first time... Paul taught Timothy what to do, and then he's reminding him, what do I do now, Paul? You didn't tell me what to do when people came up out of the ranks of the church and started becoming divisive and, 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 and creating factions. What do you do? What do we do? Paul's reminding Timothy what to do. You charge them by the authority of Christ to be quiet and to submit to the learning. 
Do you know when that happens? If somebody came into our church and, beloved, unbelievers and believers are going to exist together in the local church until the day of justice, to the day of judgment. That is God's plan. That is God's intention. Anybody who thinks that we can have a congregation of full, only spirit-filled, regenerate people is, is just, just hogwash. It's silly. We take people at their profession of faith, and when they come along with some knuckleheaded idea that sort of deveins their, the, the truth of the gospel, we say, hey, 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 you said you believe the gospel. The Bible teaches this. You know what? I'm wrong. We don't then look at, their, at that moment as their moment of conversion. You know what's the largest idol, I think, in the evangelical church? Is the point of conversion, the conversion experience. The Bible doesn't talk about it at all. The Bible doesn't give any teaching, any doctrine concerning when we're supposed to say, Oh, I was saved right then. You don't know that. That's why every time we learn more clarity or distinctions in the context of the gospel of grace, we think we've been born again. That's hogwash. Being born again is a divine work of God the Holy Spirit as He wishes, where He wishes, when He wishes, with whom He wishes, and only that to rest in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ for your sins. And it doesn't come through improper means. It doesn't come through false doctrine. It doesn't come through a false gospel. That's obvious. I didn't show you the box that the food was going to come in and you say you had food. Look at this empty box. There's a food in there later. Ah, I'm so full. No, there's no empty gospel, non-gospel, that God uses as a means through which he brings life. But God instructs the church... Paul instructs the church, God instructs the church through Paul. He wanted to be there, but God in his sovereignty prevented him to be in there. So he wrote a letter so that God would sovereignly have a letter for us. And then God prompted Paul to write this letter by the Spirit succinctly and perfectly. It's a perfect letter. There's nothing wrong in this. There's nothing wrong in 1 2 Timothy. There's no error here. There's no contradiction of things. So if you feel like sometimes when you hear me say these things about doctrine and you think that I'm being contradictory, then you've got to ask yourself, then where is it in Paul and John and, and Peter's writing? What is it contradictory there? And you know what? As someone who's been in academic circles for a long, long time, yes, there are people academically who would charge contradiction, especially between Paul and James. but they don't know what they're talking about because they're not reading the letters in the sense of its purpose. They're reading a verse or two in its syntax without its context, and that's called a pretext. So God prompted him to write the letter, and then God wrote this letter then so that elders alone are charged with overseeing the order of the saints in life, of the church, the assembly, the gathering. And so this letter is written so that the gathering, professing Christians, some of which will probably be false converts, would know how they ought to live under all circumstances. And so when we have people acting differently, disobeying, or thinking different, doc, different theological things, we confront them as elders and we charge them to listen and we teach them and they say, yes, I agree. Yes, I'll straighten out this behavior. Then we rejoice. It's over. There's nothing to be done. And all the while, the rest of the church doesn't need to have any involvement whatsoever in those things because typically, 99 out of 100 times, the church elders can deal with disciplinary or correction issues without there ever being an incident known to the public, which is good and honorable and profitable for the church, and it is the command of Christ. What about Titus? If you're not an elder of the church, you can't obey what God calls the elders to do. see Satan's got a big platform he spoke out of the platform of Peter and he speaks out of the platform of us when we do and say things that are out of order and even that is in God's sovereignty so we can rest we can rest we don't God doesn't need us to take up the mantle of defending him or changing things according to him what we think he needs, needs to be. So these gathering Christians know how to behave in every circumstance. we got false teachers. Everybody's divisive. What's going on? Be submissive. Learn quietly. Learn submission. Be qualified in your leadership. And if they're not, then sit them back in the pews and let's let them be qualified. And when they are, we can bring them back into leadership. 
Let's get the doctrines right and correct. And those who don't either come under the right doctrine or come under the right behavior are to be dismissed as unbelievers until they do. Well, I didn't think works had anything to do with something. They don't. But if you're going to be part of the church and you're going to give God glory and honor and you're not willing to submit to the works that are commanded of the order of the church, then you can't be part of the church. You're not part of the church if you're not part of the church. The word church is gathering. In the first century, the same word for church was used for governors gathering together or an assembly, a movie theater. Coming together. This letter is written so that the gathered profession Christians will know what to do in the circumstances, on all circumstances without exception. Well, this, you know, what about this? Well, then the commands that were given in behavior and attitude and action and submission and humility, they're given to us. So we do those things in every circumstance. The gathered profession Christians will have guidance and order in dealing with those who stray from right doctrine. Which is the teaching of scripture regarding God and salvation. And also the teaching of scripture regarding obedience and submission, order, humility. Which is the point of Jesus Christ as the image before the Father and salvation. I mean think about that for a second. Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. Lowered himself to become a human being. Did not make much of himself. Always gave glory to the Father and deprecated his own position before, the, before man. Called himself the son of man, not even taking deity as something to be grasped. Spoke not in a defense of his own word. Kept quiet, remained silent, passionately went to the cross. Obediently subjected himself to the Father and to the Father's will who hates murder. But yet God the Father decreed and ordained and purposed and caused the greatest murder that ever happened on the dirt of earth. And that is Jesus Christ his son. So that in that death he would redeem a people for himself. So Jesus is the example. The church is the thing that the church are the ones that what? That give the manifold wisdom of God a picture. The church includes the ones bought of Christ. As I've said, we'll have true and false sheep among her into the day of judgment. But God is the creator and the savior of his church, his household. Look at this text. I've been teaching it, but I haven't been saying it. Which is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. He bought her. And the pillar and buttress of the truth. So Jesus Christ has purchased his church. He's purchased the true sheep. He's purchased them. Nothing will change that. Even though many professors will come in, many professors will come in and also not live according to the standard that's required of order. They too must be put at arm's length. And when they are out, they're out. Until what? Until they decide to submit to the scripture. It's very simple. There is no burden, according to John, that any Christian can be called to that is impossible nor overcoming. Now think about that for a second. The church can't say you've got to dress this way and color your hair this way and brush your teeth this way. The church can't tell you and interfere in all this. Kind. I mean, we give wisdom. Is that wise? You know, you go into a job interview, but you're in a tankini. I mean, you know, is that wise? Oh, it's at the swim pool. Okay, that's fine. You're good. Oh, it's at a lawyer's office? Probably not going to get the job. You have bathed in a month? Well, you know, it's not ungodly to be nasty, I guess. But you're probably not going to find that girlfriend you've been looking for. <laughs> and, you know, she passes out from the smell. Not going to happen. And we're not going to dictate those things. We're not even going to dictate anything in the context of, of life except that which the Scripture would give us those commands. And even then, we're going to look to the clarity of what these commands are. And what are they really? To love one another as Christ has loved the church. That's the command. And what's crazy about it is that we could mold ourselves into any picture that the culture would dictate much easier than we could love our neighbor. <laughs> much easier than we could love our brother or sister. Much easier than we can love those who aggravate us or hurt us. Who are just mean and we don't like. Christ has loved us. 
the church of the living God. We are the holy ones. We are the bride of Christ. We are the sharers of his glory. We are the beloved. We are the heirs, joint heirs of righteousness and glory and majesty. But not just that. That's a whole sermon in itself. We're not just that. We're a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we don't use a whole lot of pillars. We use, we use walls. We load-bearing walls. Knock down a load-bearing wall, the house falls down. It's true. You can't change it. And if you want the wall to be open, you have to put pillars. Pillars hold up the structure. They keep it from falling over. They keep it from caving in. The church is not the foundation of the truth. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the truth. The gospel of free and sovereign grace is the foundation of the truth. And he has built pillars upon, upon himself in his death. And upon the church, upon the people he has saved, rest the reality of his picture, of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1. Brother Trey will be in this letter periodically throughout the rest of the year. The manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church to the powers and the principalities in the present age, in the heavenly places, the angels and the demons. See, the church holds up the walls of truth. There's no other means for which the truth is held, not only just in theological things, but in attitude and action and love. You see, isn't it simple to see that most of the time the world in which we live, they pick one or the other? They want to be dogmatic in certain doctrines and there's nothing wrong with being dogmatic in certain doctrines, but they do it without love and they hear the words of their Savior as Jesus writes to John in the Revelation. You have forsaken your first love. Or you find a church that says, no, we don't want to offend anybody by teaching patiently, humbly, and, and long-sufferingly the truth because the truth hurts. So let's just love and feed and care and comfort and, 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 and coddle. Let's just coddle and do all these sorts of things and let's just love and everybody flocks to that. And then the rear ends and the, and the jerks flock to the doctrines only. The true sheep desire both. Why? Because the Word of God teaches us that. And when the elders of the church, as we've already seen two weeks ago, when the elders of the church are known as being aggressive, they're not elders. Jesus is considered passive by most Christians today. Oh, he just didn't do much. And then the ones who say that he's not, he turned up tables and he called them dogs. Yeah, but you know what? No human being alive can turn over tables. And no human being alive can ever call somebody a brood of vipers or dogs. Unless, of course, they're talking to snakes or coyotes. Because we're not God. And we're not fulfilling the promises of God the Father and the purposes of the prophecy as the Christ. Only Christ could do that. It was done and then he showed what? There's a purpose in that. Everybody wants to have an attitude of, I'm going to be like Jesus and I'm going to take the world by storm and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to... But we don't have that authority. What we do have is the command to be like Christ in his humility and death. Nobody wants that. I'll die charging hell with a water pistol. No, you won't. If, we, if hell were indeed as most people portray it and we were shown a picture of it, we'd die. If we were shown a picture of the righteousness of God and justice and wrath, we'd die. Because that's what hell is, by the way. God's wrath. In the church, there is no other means but the church to be together in unity and right behavior and right truth. There are no such thing as mavericks in the faith. There's no lone ranger, no soloists, no defender, no true sheepist. I'm a true sheep by myself. No, you're not. It is the body 
that is in order alone that will uphold the truth. And yes, there are some people who cannot find a local assembly and by the means of God's purpose in technology, we can relate to them and love them and shepherd them as best we can as friends and as brothers and sisters in the faith. But, how, but that is not a platform through which God will buttress the truth. And we are called to our own homes and to our own lives and to our lives together with each other. And we're called to the community in which we rest. And the community in which we rest is not made up by borders and townships and, and, and governments. It's made up by proximity. So just because you live in one county or the other county doesn't mean that this isn't our communities. And we're to be influential of being... Uh, people for Christ in those communities by living in a loving way and submitting to this text of scripture without judgment. God will not permit any other method of revealing his manifold wisdom in this present age except through the local assembly of believers. None. Hear that church. I don't care how many people follow, listen, or learn. It's not what God intended. The church is not a building, it's not a website, it's not a social media structure, it's not a group, it's not anything, and it's not conditioned on what we want or what we like or what we say must be determined in order for it to be truly the church. God's word has established that. So we submit to Christ who put her together, who purchased her. And sometimes we end up with sheep and goat in the same pen and until the sheep are revealed, we stand firm. If we cannot stand on the simple grace of God in the church, we most likely have no standing before Him in justice anyway. Why? Because God dwells with His people. <laughs> and beloved, where God dwells, God teaches. Now, I've even had somebody tell me last week, in talking about this very thing, they said, well, you know, uh, Paul and Barnabas had a, had a fight. They didn't like each other and they divorced from each other and blah, blah, blah over John Mark. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says they had a strong disagreement on John Mark's position in the retracing of the missionary journey in the context of his fruitfulness based on Paul's authority of Christ having him with him. So God, in His sovereignty, as brothers, Paul and Barnabas said, okay, Brother, I love you. Why don't I take John Mark and I'll take him with me here and you go on and do this. Why did God do that? Because God had plans for both. And then we see in Paul's second letter to Timothy, who does he call for? Who does he call for on his deathbed? Who does he call for when it's time to get things finished for the sake of writing to the churches? Who does he call for when God the Holy Spirit is calling Paul to finish the Bible, the New Testament? He calls Timothy to come and to bring John Mark because he is important to the work of Christ in the church. Everything the apostles did was for the sake of the church, local and visible. Everything that Christ did in redemption is manifold. The wisdom of God in his all this crazy unknowable. That's what manifold means. This multiplicity of his wisdom is displayed in the local church. God dwells with his people. So God is displayed in His truth. And this is not my interpretation. This is the literal reality of what the Scripture teaches. That we display Christ when we live together rightly. Even when we have disagreements and false doctrines, when we respond to them rightly, we display Christ. And the world is amazed that anyone would tolerate the other in the local assembly. He was manifested. Look, great indeed. Verse 16, we confess is the mystery of godliness. We know it. We see it. It's Jesus Christ. And He's the mystery of godliness. 
He says it right there. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, six little things, proclaimed by among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is a hymn of praise to share and like a doxology of who Christ is. It's the story of Jesus from start to finish. And it is relating, Paul is relating the person and the work and the finished redemption of Christ to the local assembly of believers who live in an orderly fashion to love one another under the subjection of Christ himself through the written words that Jesus wrote by the Spirit through the apostles. Now the church is established and equipped to do and be that which it is called to be and commanded by the Lord for the sake of His name and glory by the power of His grace. And so we do not honor Christ in any other way if we are not doing these basic things. He was manifest in the flesh. Of course, we know this is about the incarnation. We too, as the church, are to manifest in our flesh the love of Christ, the submission to Christ, to be a slave to righteousness. To be a lover. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead for he was not guilty of sin in and of himself. Just like we are not righteous in our flesh in and of ourselves. We get the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And the guilt of our sin, the sin of the elect, was credited to Jesus. So one day we also will be vindicated by the Spirit. We will receive resurrected bodies. We, we need to live then as though we are not of this world and that this meat suit that we live in and all of its conflict and all of its pain and suffering is not the point of this life. The point of this life is to set it aside as much as possible so that we can gather together for the sake of doing the work of the ministry because when we serve Christ's people, we indeed are serving Him. When we pray for Christ's people, we indeed are honoring Him and trusting in Him. And so, beloved, as Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, so shall we be. Jesus was seen by angels. He was spoken of. He was proclaimed at His birth by angels. We see the Scripture throughout telling the disciples, look, He's not here. He is, he's alive. And so on and so forth. The Scripture talks about how angels look desperately and, and, and longingly into the things of salvation. How they're watching this grand design of God and His sovereignty play out for the sake of the local church coming together in this earth in unity. Every congregation a pillar of the truth holding up the beauty of the glory of the majesty of Christ so that every time the people of the world look they have no excuse just as when they see the clouds in the sky they see the truth of Christ and the love of His people and their sovereignty of Christ and the rule of Christ and their, and their ability to see and understand and be disciplined to, to answer all the world's conflict and all the church's conflict in an orderly manner. Out of chaos comes order in creation. Out of death and destruction comes order in salvation. And that salvation is lived out in this world through the local assembly of God. Seen by angels, we will join this celebration one day. We will join the angels. The only time we see the word ecclesia in any form is in Hebrews where it talks about the ecclesia of all the nations together. The church in glory with Jesus Christ. That is the only time the invisible church is mentioned. But it is not invisible then and it is not invisible now. It will be visible then. Forever together. This is the preparation for that. Proclaimed among the nations. The prophets proclaimed Christ. The apostles proclaimed Christ. Now the church proclaims Christ. Jesus Christ was believed on in the world. He came to save His own from the world. Not just a select nation, but all His select elect out of all nations. Christ saves His people in all nations, in all tongues, in all tribes. We are on this mission and we are part of this mission. We are the fruit of this mission, beloved. We're not in, we're not in competition with the ministries of the world. We're not in competition with anything. God will do everything He has purposed to do for His people. And beloved, when you see them gather together in gospel unity and gospel correction and gospel living, God is glorified in it. And Jesus, as He was ascended, He was taken up in glory, and He promised to come and take us to where He was. And this picture is something we look forward to. This promise is something that we wait for. 
Beloved, Paul has much to say, and he's going to begin to talk about the false teaching and how it came into the church and how it can come into our lives and how it has come into our lives and how God has been good to work through it for us. How many times have we been wrong and yet God has been patient to teach us? Where there is knowledge of sovereign grace, kindness and hope and patience abound. Because when we look to Christ, all that other stuff doesn't matter. And we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be patient. We're never going to be loving like we should be. But we're never going to be any, at ever, any point like that if we're not looking at the cross. If we're not looking at the finished work of Christ. And we're forever going to be looking at how we're going to handle this or what we're going to do. Just look at Christ and submit to Him and see what He's telling us to do. And we will, be at, we will have joy. We'll have peace until we start thinking again out of our own flesh. And then we'll have to come back. That's why we gather together as much as we can. That's why we encourage each other. That's why we ought to have lives together intimately outside of the, just the assembly. But the assembly is the platform from which all of those things come. And those who do not want to be in the assembly cannot receive the ministry. It's not theirs. It's not theirs. It's yours. And so in that, just as Christ is yours and you are His, we can worship together in this beautiful, beautiful gospel picture. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your patience. And Father, for just how you are always so patient, especially with me. God, I can get so wound up. You've been kind to show my sin to me, and you have been kind to hide it from me sometimes that I might not be in great despair and but Lord, in all your wisdom, you reveal to us as you have seen fit in the timing that you have purposed to show us your discipline, to correct us and to bring us back to hope and peace. And so as we are together today, there are many who are not with us because of travel and illness and other things. So Father, as we prayed for them already twice, we pray for them again in the end, Lord, that you would... Hold them and keep them and bring them back into our lives healthy and healed. But Lord, even so, let us minister to those in need. Father, help us to focus on those who are truly submissive to your word and to continue to preach the gospel of grace that the sheep who have ears to hear will hear and come to graze on the beauty of Christ together. And let us not worry about what the world's doing or the other churches are doing or other people might be doing. But, Father, let us be concerned with who we are and what we are doing that we might live according to your commands, according to your gospel, live a life worthy of the calling that you've given us in Christ. So we thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers for the sake of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.